You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. Good evening. Welcome to the Swedish American Music Hall. We at Booksmith are so pleased to have you here tonight for Neil Stevenson. If we could take a moment of housekeeping. Number one, if everyone could please silence your cell phones, your pagers, your things that go beep in the night. Um, We'd like to make a request, no flash photography. That includes iPhone photography. There is a flash component to it. We asked tonight who would be uh, the best person to introduce Neil Stevenson, so we brought up a local radio uh, host and super fan, uh, Rick Keppel. So Rick, please come up. Thank you. Where you've come from is gone. Where you thought you were going to never existed. And where you are is no good unless you can get away. Tonight's presentation will be presented in fully rendered 3D audio video with complete haptic feedback. No 3D glasses will be required and no high-speed internet connection will be required for tonight's presentation. Creative work of value is possible only when there's resistance, either from the medium itself or the audience at whom the work is aimed. But since, with the collapse and disappearance of religion and the censors, one can say anything to anyone. And since, with the disappearance of those attentive readers who hung on every word, one can howl anything at anyone, literature, music, video games, movies, all of it, is a corpse whose advancing decay is stubbornly concealing the next of kin. What we need now is a work where there is an element of menace and risk, and therewith importance and responsibility to the artistic medium. Such a field, such an activity can today be only found in the work of Neil Stevenson. Ladies and gentlemen, this man has been building worlds. He has, look around you, look around you. Look at your cell phones, even though they're dead, I hope. This man helped create that world. As he builds worlds, he built the past with his Baroque trilogy. He wrote fiction about science. He turned an entire genre upside down and helped us dive into history to understand where we'd come from so we could know where we are. He's written about power of science and technology in our life to tie us together and tear us apart. And in his work, he has tied us together and helped tear us apart. His latest work does something really unusual. With a man who's written so much about world building, he's written a book that builds the world of those who builds worlds. It's set in the present day. It's about now. It's about you and it's about us. Ladies and gentlemen, I'd like you to welcome our guest for tonight, Neil Stevenson.
Thanks for that very generous uh, introduction. Um, my vocal cords are a bit blown out, so I'm, I'll be playing with the mic a little bit uh, so that I can uh, speak in as low a voice as possible and still be heard. Uh, so far, it seems to be working pretty well. Um, I'm going to do some readings from the book. Uh, most of these are going to concern one character, um, Richard Forthrast, uh, who's a man with a complicated backstory who, um, among other things, uh, has founded a company called Corporation 9592 that runs a, a very popular uh, uh, MMORPG, massively multiplayer online role-playing game called Terrain. Um, and um, Richard uh, grew up on a farm in Iowa. Uh, he frequently goes back for family reunions. Uh, uh, we are going to join him um, uh, on a, he's, 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 he's been uh, participating in a, a family tradition, which is shooting guns. Uh, and um, someone's out of ammunition, and so he's driving uh, his rented uh, car to the Walmart to purchase supplies, and with him uh, are his niece, Zula, who's an uh, adopted uh, Eritrean uh, orphan, uh, and uh, her boyfriend, Peter, and another cousin whose name he can't remember. <laughs> the Walmart was like a starship that had landed in the soybean fields. Richard drove past the part of it where food was sold, past the pharmacy and the eye care center, and parked at the end where they stocked merchandise. The parking spaces were platted for full-sized pickup trucks, a detail useful to him now. They went inside. The young ones shuffled to a stop as their ironic sensibilities, which served them in lieu of souls, were jammed by a signal of overwhelming power. Richard kept moving since he was the one with the mission. He'd seen a way to contribute to the reunion without stepping in or turning an ankle on any of the cow pies strewn so intricately across his path. He kept walking until everything in his field of vision was camouflage or fluorescent orange, then looked around for the ammunition counter. An elderly man came out wearing a blue vest and rested his wrinkly hands on the glass like an Old West barkeeper. Richard nodded at the man's pro forma greeting and then announced that he wanted three large boxes of the 5.56 millimeter NATO cartridges. The man nodded and turned around to unlock the glass case where the good stuff was stockpiled. On the back of his vest was a large yellow smiley face that was thrust out and made almost hemispherical by his widower's hump. Len was handing it out three rounds at a time, he explained to the others as they caught up with him. Everyone wants to fire his carbine, but no one buys ammo, and 5.56 is kind of expensive these days because all of the nut jobs are convinced it's going to be banned. The clerk set the heavy boxes carefully on the glass counter, drew a pistol-shaped barcode scanner from its plastic holster, and zapped each of the three boxes in turn, three pulls of the trigger, three direct hits. He quoted an impressively high figure. Richard already had his wallet out when he opened it up, the niece or second cousin, he still hadn't contrived a way to get her name, glanced into the valley of nice leather so indiscreetly that he was tempted to just hand the whole thing over to her. 
She was astonished to see the face of Queen Elizabeth in colorful pictures of hockey players and doughboys. He hadn't thought to change money, and now he was in a place with no bureaus de change. He paid with a debit card. When did you move to Canada? asked the young woman. 1972, he answered. The old man gave him a look over his bifocals. Draft dodger. <laughs> None of the younger people made the connection. He wondered if they even knew that the country had once had a draft and that people had been at pains to avoid it. Just need your PIN number, Mr. Forrest, said the clerk. Richard, like many who'd moved away, pronounced his name for Thrast, but he answered to Forthrast, which was how everyone here said it. He even recognized Forrest, which was what the name would probably erode into pretty soon if the family didn't up stakes. By the time they'd made it to the exit, he had decided that the Walmart was not so much a starship as an interdimensional portal to every other Walmart in the known universe. <laughs> and that when they walked out the doors past the greeters, they might find themselves in Pocatello or Wichita. But as it turned out, they were still in Iowa. So this is him uh, leaving the, the reunion the next day. Richard awoke and made efforts to silence his phone, only to find that the local climate had sucked all moisture out of his fingertips which could not obtain virtual purchase on the tiny affordances of its user interface. Through some combination of licking and breathing on his fingers, he was able to get them damp enough that the machine now grudgingly recognized them as human flesh, responded to his commands, and became silent. He groped for his reading glasses and tapped the calendar button. A green slab rushed out of the darkness and made his white chest hairs glow in viridian thickets. His eyes came into focus and read its label, Road Trip Skeletor. Zooming out to a longer time scale, he saw good color omens, no red at all for the next fortnight and four solid days of green, the color of business, coming up. Blue was the color of family and other personal activities. Yesterday, for example, had been a 16-hour blue tombstone labeled Ryu. Following road trip Skeletor were other enormous green slabs labeled to IOM, which, as Richard knew only too well, was the airport code for the Isle of Man, then pay fealty D2, and finally to SEA. Red was for things like medical appointments and doing his taxes. A week that was even lightly spattered with red was pretty much a write-off when it came to getting anything accomplished. Blue wasn't as bad as red, but it did tend to infiltrate neighboring regions of green and mulch them. Rare indeed were the moments when blue time could be converted to green. For example, yesterday when he had realized that his niece Zula ought to be working for Corporation 9592. Waking up in green mode, then spending the whole day there was really the only way to get anything done. So color physics now dictated that he must steal out of the hotel without having any interactions whatsoever with the reunion crowd that would already have filled the Ramada's breakfast room and spilled over into the lobby. He checked out over the phone and stood in perfect silence, eyeball to peephole, until he could no longer see miniature forefasts in bathing suits going to or from the pool. He then stole out of the motel through a side exit and gunned the Grand Marquis to a gas station half a mile down the road just to get decisively clear. He pumped a bathtub load of gasoline into the thing and bought a cup of coffee and a banana for the road. 
He fired up the car's onboard GPS device and began coping with its user interface. The Possum Walk trailer court was no longer listed in its points of interest database, so he had to settle for browsing the greater Nottoway region of northwestern Missouri. Expecting to see nothing more than a post office and maybe a county park, he was dismayed and fascinated when it hurled up a low-res icon of a pointy-eared humanoid with long blue braids labeled Kshatriya Kingdom. Further browsing informed him that it was part of a larger Kshatriya-themed complex that included an amusement park and a retail outlet. He could not bring himself to choose this as his destination and coyly allowed the machine to vector him to the county seat. On his way out of town, deeply preoccupied with the fact that the Urzat's quasi-elven race, known as the Kshatriya, were now embedded, though sans the controversial apostrophe, in the memory chips of real-world GPS systems, he almost plowed into the back of what passed for a traffic jam around here. Black Friday shoppers trying to force-feed their vehicles into the parking lot and their bodies through the doorway of Walmart. In olden days, he would have pumped the brakes judiciously, bringing the enormous vehicle to a stop, but nowadays he knew that this could be outsourced to anti-lock brakes, so he just crushed the pedal to the floor and waited. The, <laughs> the pedal thrummed beneath his foot. The white plastic teat of his go-cup discharged a globule of coffee and his banana boomeranged into the glove compartment lid. He watched dispassionately as the tailgate of a pickup truck grew huge in his windshield not unlike a calendar item zooming onto the screen of his phone. No collision occurred. The driver gave him the finger. A light changed and traffic seeped forward. Soon enough, he was on the interstate southbound. That rapidly grew boring, so he switched to two-lane roads to the mounting chagrin of his GPS. <laughs> In spite of his cloak and dagger exit from the Ramada, his brain was jammed with family stuff. He had woken up in the wrong color. He had to get all traces of blue out of his mind and achieve full greenness before he got anywhere near the Iowa-Missouri line. For this was not just a friendly meeting. Nuances in today's conversation, things left unsaid or said in the wrong way could have expensive consequences. The day after Thanksgiving might have been time off for most of the country, but not for Skeletor. The parochial turkey-eating customs of the United States were of no interest at all to the hyper-international clientele that he and Richard shared, and even their American players, though they might have taken a few hours off yesterday for family observances, would be devoting most of today to questing for virtual gold and vicarious glory in the world of terrain, making this one of the heaviest days of the year for Corporation 9592's servers and the system administrators who kept them running. But his mind kept drifting into the blue. It was like a puzzle in a video game. He had to figure out what was really bothering him. It wasn't the furious muses. After a brief howl of outrage when he'd almost rear-ended the pickup truck, they had been silent for hours. Somewhere around Red Oak, he finally put it together. It was yesterday's short but uneasy exchange with the Wikipedia reading in-law. The actual content of Richard's Wikipedia entry was not at issue. What bothered Richard was the mere fact that such a thing existed and that he had been abruptly reminded of it at a moment when he just wanted to be Richard hanging around the old place doing normal Iowa stuff. The entry in question started with a summary of what Richard was now and it filled in biographical details only when they seemed relevant to whatever mysterious stalker scholars compiled such documents. 
he was not important enough and the entry was insufficiently long to include a biographical section laying out the whole story in narrative form, which seemed all wrong to him since the only way to make sense of what he was now was to tell the story of how he'd gotten that way. So now I'm going to read a bit where Richard is flying from his uh, Schloss in British Columbia to, um, to uh, Seattle. Um, and um, as he's uh, flying, uh, he's, he's looking out the window at the landscape of, of Washington State and he's thinking about his business partner, Chet, who's uh, uh, the guy that he built, uh, uh, built the, the Schloss with. One evening in 1977, Chet had been riding south from a lucrative rendezvous in Pipestone, Minnesota. It was a warm summer night. The moon and the stars were out. He leaned back against his sissy bar and let the wind blow in his long hair and cranked up the throttle. Then he woke up in a long-term care facility in Minneapolis in February. <laughs> As was slowly explained to him by the occupational therapists, he had been found in the middle of a cornfield by a farmer's dog. It seemed that his nocturnal ride had been terminated by a sudden westward jog in the section line road. Failing to jog, he had flown off straight into the cornfield doing something like 90 miles an hour. The corn, which was eight feet tall at that time of the year, had brought him to a reasonably gentle stop and so he had sustained surprisingly few injuries. The long, tough, fibrous stalks had split and splintered as he tore through them, but his leathers had deflected most of it. Unfortunately, he had not been wearing a helmet and one splinter had gone straight up his left nostril into his brain. The recovery had taken a while. Chet had gotten most of his brain functions back. He had not lost any of his wits unless discretion and social skills could be so designated. <laughs> so he had devoted a lot of attention to the question of why the transit brandishing pencil necks who had laid out the section lines a hundred years ago had been so particular about sticking to a grid pattern and yet had perversely inserted these occasional sideways jogs into the grid. Examining maps, he noticed that the jogs only occurred in north-south roads, never east-west. The answer, of course, was that the Earth was a sphere, and so it was geometrically impossible to cover it with a grid of squares. You could grid a good-sized patch of it, but eventually you would have to insert a little adjustment, move one row of sections east or west relative to the row beneath it. It being the 1970s and Chet being a high school dropout with a damaged brain, he could not help but perceive something huge in this discovery. <laughs> Nor could he avoid coming to the conclusion that the mistake he had made on that beautiful moonlit night had been a sort of message from above, a warning that during the grubby day-to-day -day work of small town pot dealing, he had been failing to attend to larger and more cosmic matters. He had moved west as Americans did in those days when they were searching for the cosmic. A few hundred miles short of the Pacific, he had fallen in with the biker group that collaborated with Richard on his backpack smuggling scheme. Among them, he had acquired a sort of shamanistic aura and become the high priest of a breakaway faction, calling itself the Septentrion Paladins to distinguish themselves from their predominantly Californian parent group. They had moved north of the border and established themselves in southern BC. A second near-fatal crash had only enhanced Chet's mystical reputation. 
Not long after Chet <clears throat> had been released from the hospital after the second crash, the Septentrion Paladins had embarked on a project to, as Chet put it, get in touch with our masculinity. When this policy initiative had abruptly been made known to Richard in the middle of a barroom conversation on seemingly unrelated topics, awe and horror had struggled for supremacy in his mammalian brain as his reptilian had begun to tally all exits, conventional and un, from the bar, lubricated his whole body with sweat, and jacked his pulse rate up into a frequency range that had probably jammed Mountie's radar guns out on Highway 22. <laughs> For he had known these men all too well in their pre-masculine days and could not imagine what they were about to get up to now. <laughs> Over the course of the next few minutes, marginally coherent discussion, however, he pieced together that what Chet really meant was that they would stay in touch with their masculinity, but with a more modest body count. The change in emphasis seemed to coincide with some of the surviving principals getting married and having kids. They got rid of most of their guns and took advantage of Canada's surprisingly easygoing sword laws, riding around the provincial byways with five-foot claymores strapped to their backs. <laughs> They met in forest clearings to engage in mock duels and jousts with foam weapons, and they went to Ren Fairs to hoist tankers with their newfound soul brothers in the Society for Creative Anachronism. <laughs> Roaring down the byways of southern BC with the cross hilts of their claymores projecting above their shoulders, they had become a familiar feature of that self-consciously quirky part of the world. Barely visible behind concentric shells of tinted glass and perforated sunscreens, children in minivans had pointed to them and waved with lavish enthusiasm. The Septentrion Paladins had become the subjects of offbeat slash heartwarming featurettes on regional television news broadcasts, and they had ceased to commit crimes. Turning his attention back to matters inside the plane's cabin, Richard resumed reading the Terrain Gazette, a daily newspaper, electronic format, of course, created by a micro department operating out of the Seattle office, which summarized what had been going on all over terrain during the preceding 24 hours. Notable achievements, wars, duels, sackings, mortality statistics, plagues, famines, untoward spikes in commodity prices. Torgai mortality hits one million percent mark compiled from reports by Gazette correspondents Greshnach the Forsaken, Eric Bloodmace, and Lady Lacewing of Ferry. Torgai Foothills. The mortality rate in this unexpectedly war-ravaged region today skyrocketed through one million percent. Local observers attributed the unusual figure to an epical influx of, in of outsiders compelled by as yet unexplained astral phenomena to pay tribute to a local troll. The visitors, or as they have come to be known to locals, meet, are laden with tribute <laughs> and hence make tempting targets for highwaymen. The one million percent benchmark is considered by analysts to be an important psychological barrier that separates a war-ravaged inferno from a chiliastic gore storm. <laughs> Steadying himself on an eight-foot wizard staff as he waded through a knee-high river of blood washing down the market street of Bagpipe Gulch, a community that once prized its status as the gateway to Torgai, Shikandar the Fearsome, a local alchemist, denied that the trend was a negative influence on the town's image. 
insisting that the influx of meat and the bandits, land pirates, and cutthroats who had come to prey on them had been a boon to the region's economic development and a bonanza for local merchants, especially those who, like Shikandar, dealt in goods such as healing potions and magically enhanced whetstones that were in demand among the newcomers. In the Wayfarer Inn, a popular local watering hole situated on the precipitous road leading up out of Bagpipe Gulch into the foothills, <clears throat> a more nuanced view of the situation could be heard in the remarks of a muffled voice barely audible through a wall of corpses stacked all the way to the taproom ceiling and identifying itself as Goodman Bustle, the barkeep. Suggesting that all the visitors and attention might be too much of a good thing, the voice identifying itself as Bustle complained that many customers, citing as an excuse the towering rampart of decaying flesh that had completely blocked access to the bar, had departed the premises without paying their tabs. The compilers of this document all sported advanced liberal arts degrees from very expensive institutions of higher learning and wrote in this style as Richard had belatedly realized as a form of job security. <laughs> Upper management had grown accustomed to reading the Gazette every morning over their lattes and would probably have paid these people to write it even if it hadn't been an official part of Corporation 9592's budget. The phrase, as yet unexplained astral phenomena, was a hyperlink leading to a separate article on the internal wiki, for it was an iron law of Gazette editorial policy that the world of terrain as seen through the screens of players must be treated as the ground truth, the only reality observable or reportable by its correspondence. Oddities due to the choices made by players were attributed to strange lights in the sky eldritch influences beyond the ken of even the most erudite local observers, unlooked for syzygy, what was most likely the intervention of a capricious local demigod, bolt from the blue, or in one case, an unexpected reversal of fortune that even the most wizened local gaffers agreed was without precedent and that indeed, if seen in a work of literature, would have been derided as a heavy-handed example of deus ex machina. <laughs> But of course, it was one of the Gazette staff's most important tasks to report on player behavior, that is, on things that happened in the real world, and so such phrases were always linked to non-Gazette articles written in a sort of corporate memo speak that always disheartened Richard when he clicked through to it. In this case, the explanatory memo supplied the information that the Torgai foothills were the turf of a band calling themselves the Da Ji Shu, probably an abbreviation of Da Gold Shu, makers of gold, where the truncation of gold to G was either due to the influence of gangsta rap or because it was easier to type. They had been running the place for years, all pretty normal. There were many little enclaves like this. Nothing in the rules prevented a sufficiently dedicated and well-organized band of players from conquering and holding a particular stretch of ground. The meat were there because of Reemdi, which had been present at background levels for several weeks now, but that recently had pinballed through the elbow in its exponential growth curve, and for about 12 hours had looked as though it might completely take over all computing power in the universe until its own size and rapid growth had caused it to run afoul of the sorts of real-world friction that always befell seemingly exponential phenomena and bent those hockey stick graphs over into lazy S-plots, which was not to say that it wasn't still a very serious problem and that scores of programmers and sysadmins were not working 18-hour shifts crawling all over the thing, 
but it wasn't going to take over the world and it wasn't going to bring the whole company to a stop and in the meantime, thousands of characters were racking up experience points, slaying each other in Goodman Bustle's pub. <laughs> Corvallis Kawasaki picked him up on the tarmac of the Renton airport. He was driving the inevitable Prius. I could have had a friggin' Lincoln town car, Richard complained as he stuffed himself into its front seat. Just wanted to bend your ear a little, C plus explained, fussing with the intermittent wiper knob, trying to dial in that elusive setting always so difficult to find in Seattle that would keep the windshield visually transparent but not drag shuddering blades across dry glass. They were straight, staring straight down the runway at the southern bight of Lake Washington, which was flecked with whitecaps. It had been a choppy landing, and Richard felt a bit clammy. Corvallis had grown up in the town after which he was named, the son of a Japanese-American Cog Sai professor and an Indian biotech researcher, but culturally he was pure Oregonian. No one at the company knew exactly what he did for a living, but it was hard to imagine the place without him. He shifted the Prius into gear, or whatever it was called when you pulled the lever that made it go forward, <laughs> and proceeded at a safe and sane speed among the parked airplanes dripping and rocking against their tie-downs and out through a gate and onto something that looked like an actual street. I know you're going to see Devon tomorrow, and mostly what's on your mind is the war. He paused slightly before saying war, and he said it funny with a long O and heavy emphasis. War, Richard repeated. W-O-R, C-plus explained. The War of Realignment. Is that what the cool kids are calling it now? Yeah, I guess it works better in email than in conversation. <laughs> anyway, I know you're going to be prepping for that, but also you need to know that there are some interesting techno-legal issues coming up around RIMD. God, that sounds like just the sort of can of worms that I retired to get away from. I don't think you are actually retired, Corvallis pointed out mildly. I mean, you just flew in from Elphinstone, and tomorrow you're taking a jet to Missouri, and from there, it's a selective retirement, Richard explained. A retirement from boring shit. <laughs> I think that's called a promotion. <laughs> well, whatever you call it, I don't want to drill down. Is that the expression you use? You know perfectly well that it is into nasty details of Reemdee's legal consequences. I mean, we've had viruses before, right? We have 281 active viruses as of the last time I checked, which was an hour ago. Richard drew breath, but C-plus cut him off. And before you go where you're going, let me just point out that most of them don't actually make use of our technology as a payment mechanism. So Reemdee is not just another virus. It presents new issues because our servers are actually being used to transfer the booty. Turns out, Corvallis warned him, that federal law enforcement types haven't yet bought into the whole mindset, and so they aren't real big on terms like booty, swag, hoard, treasure, or anything that is evocative of a fictitious medieval armed combat scenario. <laughs> to them, it's all payments, and since our system uses real money, it's all, well, real. I always knew that that was going to swing around and bite me in the ass someday, Richard said. I just didn't know how or when. Well, it's bitten you in the ass lots of times, actually. I know, but each one feels like the first. <laughs> the creator of the Reem D virus has made some interesting choices. 
interesting in a way that's bad for us? Richard asked, because this was clearly implied by Corvallis's tone. Well, that depends on whether we want to be the avenging sword of the Justice Department here or sort of cop out and say it's not our problem. Go on. The instructions in the eponymous file just state that the gold pieces are to be left at a location in the Torgai foothills. The gold is scattered all over the place. They anticipated we might make move to shut them down, Richard said, so they spread things out. Apparently, so it's analogous to a situation in the real world where caches of gold have been scattered all over a rugged wilderness area, hundreds of square kilometers. If that happened in the real world, Richard said, the cops would just cordon off the area. And that is exactly what cops of various nationalities are asking us to do in this case, C plus said. Just write a script that will eject or log out every character in the tour guide foothills and prevent them from logging back in, then go in there and collect evidence. By go in there, you mean run a program that will identify all gold pieces or piles or containers thereof in that region? Yes. And are we telling them to fuck themselves? This seemed the obvious thing to do, but Richard wouldn't put anything past Corporation 9592's current CEO. We don't have any choice, C plus said. Richard was struck mute with admiration at the way C plus had answered the question while imputing nothing except helplessness to the CEO. Corvallis went on, ReamD has affected users from at least 43 different countries that we know about. If we say yes to one, we have to say yes to all of them. And then our company is being micromanaged by the United Nations, Richard said. Awesome. <laughs> he was way too old to use this all-purpose adjective sincerely, but was not above throwing it into a sentence for ironic effect. The legal issues are just fantastically complex, C plus said, given all the different nationalities. So I'm not here to tell you that we've got an answer, but it helps that each individual event is a very small crime, $73 at current exchange rates, under the radar as far as serious criminal prosecution is concerned. I have a headache already, Richard said. Is there anything you actually need me to do, or are you just, just cluing you in, C plus said. I'm sure that the PR staff will want some quality time with you before you go on the road. They just want to tell me to shut up, Richard said. I already know that. That is not the actual point. They just want to be seen as having done their jobs. Richard fell silent for a while, wondering whether there was any way that he could delegate to an underling all meetings whose sole purpose was for the people he was meeting with to demonstrate that they were doing their jobs. <laughs> Then he realized he should have just stayed in the schloss if that was what he really wanted. So I think I'll stop there with uh, readings and we can kind of go over to question time for a bit. Uh, we've got about 20, 25 minutes or so. So, so we have a microphone right here if you'd like to come up and ask questions. or come down, as the, the case may be. Uh, hi. Hi. I have the uh, uh, both versions. I have the Kindle version. OK. And there are, and I was just wondering if whether or not you had anything uh, to do with, with, with the actual Kindle version, because there are some uh, inconsistencies, not to say typos, not to say code that you stuck in there. Is, it, is there any code? Is there any code? What? <laughs> <laughs> Is it code, man? I, I, uh, <laughs> um, 
This happened with uh, with Cryptonomicon. Yeah, well, this time it might be ironic. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, it, it was Cryptonomicon had a lot of typos in the first. It had so many typos in the first edition that some people became convinced it was a code. <laughs> uh, so, um, but but it's not. Sorry. Yeah. yeah. But if it was, I wasn't. I wouldn't tell you. <laughs> but it's really not. Okay. Um, go ahead. Hi, big fan, of course. I mean, sure, everybody is here. I mean, you're the you're absolute manager, my favorite novelist of all time. But oh, thanks. I'm uh, having got a real, uh, you know, quick look at the book, of course, and I'm very excited, of course, a new mm. book. But I was just curious about some of your old standbys, some of the the Waterhouses and the Shaftos that you, you know, were writing about for years. We're always, you know, at, at this point, I kind of feel like. I know the whole family, you know, the Shaftos, yep. of course, yep. and the, and the yep. Waterhouses. And I was just curious if you had uh, kind of any plans, or do you find kind of feel like those stories are, you know, kind of done, and like the lineage is kind of like set so? Yeah, no, I, I wouldn't say I had plans uh, either way. I mean, it's just uh, it, when I got to the end of uh, the Brook cycle, I was having so much fun with that stuff that uh, I could very clearly see myself as a 90-year-old man writing volume 57, <laughs> you know. We'd be a fan of, of that. I think that everybody saga. here would be, you know, would and, love that. And that's, that wouldn't necessarily be a bad thing, but, uh, but I, I uh, before, uh, you know, sort of going into that cattle shoot, I, I wanted to just uh, see if I could do some other stuff too. So, so there's, I haven't ruled out doing more with those guys. Um, there's another family in, in the new book that's, you know, reasonably interesting, oh, too. So, I'm looking yeah. forward to it. Um, well, group, one last one was real quick was that Anathem uh, was absolutely great. And I think I, I saw when I was looking at the book that they were doing actually like little previews, you know, on YouTube and stuff of actually live action shots. It almost seemed like there was some kind of uh, visual media involved with maybe in the process. Or... That's a, a new thing that I only became aware of at that time, which is... Um, Trailers for books, right? You know, uh, which w when I heard about it, I couldn't believe it. But it's actually a uh, uh, kind of a cool thing. Uh, yeah. there, there's a, a filmmaker in Seattle named Brady Hall who uh, who does a lot of them, uh, and uh, he put that thing together on a shoestring budget in like just a ridiculously minimal uh, amount of time. So. But but that shouldn't be interpreted as right. meaning that there's more or that there's going to be more. It's just uh, it's just this advertising uh, thing that they're that they're doing now. Well, it was pretty cool. I mean, I think that that book was of course amazing. That was your last book. All right, thank you very much. Yeah, thank you. Thanks. Um, as a writer who's been prolific enough to say that you have some kind of intellectual estate, I'm wondering how involved you are with the handling of that estate and how you feel about the handling of the estate that you have not been involved with. Uh, how do I feel about what? The intellectual estate that you have, whether or not you've been involved with it. I mean, if you've been handling the entirety of that estate, I mean, you have so many books and there is a lot of publication and sort of... Uh, advertising that's involved with a lot of those. And so I'm wondering how much you've been involved with those and how you feel about those you have not necessarily been involved with. Uh, I'm, not, I'm not entirely clear on what we're, what we're talking about. <laughs> um, could, could you give me an example of, of, of what you're, <coughs> I just don't know what you mean, sorry. Um, I've been informed that you know you don't necessarily handle your own Facebook page, you know the Neil Stevenson Facebook page. I don't know if that's. Oh yeah, okay. 
Okay. Um, yeah, that's a good concrete example. Um, that, uh, there's a, a great story. There's two of them. There's the real one, and then there's the one you're probably thinking of, which, which was uh, 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 started out as a fan page. And then uh, due to some, I don't know the details, but somehow Facebook changed the template or something. And uh, as an unintended consequence of that, the, it, it began to look like my real page and it got a large number of, of followers. Um, and um, so we've, we've got a deal going now with the, the guy who kind of runs that. Uh, um, and I think my sense is that he's he's relieved, um, <laughs> and and so so there's there's one that that's just managed by somebody else, uh, and then there's there's the real one, which is just people I actually know. <laughs> so uh, I don't know if this is really answering your your question though. Um, yeah, I think that's reasonable. Okay. <laughs> yeah. so. Thank you very much. Yeah, you're welcome. Hey, um, so I was just curious, I, I noticed that there's a lot of times where you, uh, it seems like there's a nugget of an idea in one book that you maybe draw on, or I don't know if you start research on it and it grows into the next, whether it, you know, I'm thinking of examples like, clearly you've got guys with motorcycles and swords and you've got hero protagonist again, and you've got, um, uh, you know, uh, there's a, moment I noticed on the raft in Snow Crash where they, there's this Filipino family and I thought, well, I wonder if this is where you started thinking about um, some of the stuff in Cryptomicon. And I just wonder if you go back into some of your old novels to find nuggets of things to explore further or if it's just things that germinate in your mind and then you... No, I never read them again. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, and it's not, there's no systematic kind of procedure like you're thinking of. It's just I kind of have a pile of things I'm interested in, and so they they tend to to recur. Um, so and, and sometimes I have to be careful not to uh, inadvertently reinclude something that was in a, a previous book. Uh, but there's no plan. There's no. Uh, can you give an example of something that you almost re-included, or is that, um, I, I don't mean to pry. Well, well uh, apparently I did re-include a, a guy on a motorcycle with a sword. <laughs> yeah. So. Thanks from the bottom of my heart for the end of Anathem. Uh, I just really, really, really appreciate when I finally got it. Oh, um, thanks. Yeah, so um, the recent uh, kind of drama in the world of online currencies like Bitcoin and in online games like EVE with all the skullduggery and, tre and treachery, do you find it to be inspiration, homage? Are they ripping you off? Um, or were you kind of involved in all this stuff and making all this stuff happen from behind the scenes? No, I'm just, I'm, I'm completely unaware of it. <laughs> Your humor. Yeah, I, I, don't, I don't know about any skullduggery or treachery. All right. <laughs> I, I don't, don't really want Sounds to. like a straight out of your, your novels, so I thought you might have had a hand in it. So, no. Thanks. Yeah, thanks. Hi there. Um, Hi. 
So one of the things that I really love about reading your novels is that I'll read a paragraph and then find myself a half hour or an hour later coming back and like, oh, I was just off on a train of thought. And so that's just really profoundly, deeply awesome. And I'm wondering what, uh, you know, so there's like the other books that have different lines of inquiry, like um, if you rewrite the past, how does the future get affected? Or what are the lines of inquiry in Western philosophy for 2,000 years? I'm wondering what, what made you have the line of inquiry for the present novel? And then what also has you uh, what, discovered what, new lines of inquiry? And thank um, you for having them. So I know you got, you're being drowned out by a forklift. So, um, <laughs> so, so just could you say the, the question part again? I just missed so, a couple um, words. It's, it's more like, uh, how do you come to your lines of inquiry? What, what is the theme of the line of inquiry for the present novel? And oh. then you're done with it. So where are you going in the future? Well, um, there, there were a, a, few, um, a, a, a few things that happened during the, the writing of the, the, the last few books that uh, kind of got me thinking about just plot for plot's sake. So in uh, the, the Confusion, which is the middle novel of the Brooks cycle, it's just a lot of people running around having adventures. It's just a big kind of nonstop uh, adventure story. And uh, I really enjoyed writing that. And you know, there are different sort of branches of the, the, the fiction writing art that one might choose to emphasize at different times. Okay, you can try to write amazing prose or you can uh, concentrate on you know, characterization or uh, you know, philosophical themes or whatever. And one of those branches is, is plot. And I just, uh, after Anathem, which you know, had a lot of ideas in it, uh, I just thought it would be fun to um, to just write something that, that was all about plot. And this was uh, the, the, the basic storyline of Reemdi was something that had been kind of banging around in my head for uh, a number of years. And I, I said, what the hell, I'm just gonna kind of write this down as a novel and kind of go for it. So just. Awesome, thank okay. you. Yeah, thanks. <laughs> Um, Hi. I was just wondering if um, if you still keep in touch with Marco Kaltofen. Yeah. And um, and I was certainly curious. Uh, it seems that uh, Zodiac is is probably the thing that uh, a movie director would most likely be able to actually turn into something real and interesting. And I've been curious if uh, I would agree. Uh, are are there any plans in the works or anybody that you're talking to about uh, in the movie space? Uh, for that one, I think. Uh, God, it's been a long time, but uh, I think uh, we just, or I just sold the, the movie rights outright. So I don't even have them anymore. Uh, and so it, it'd be, I think it's Warner Brothers. It, it would be up to them if they wanted to do something with it. Sure. But I haven't heard anything. Okay. Um, are, are there any other novels that you know that are somewhere in, in the deal stage or? anything you could talk about? They're kind of all in that stage forever. <laughs> <laughs> I, I mean, it, it's, you know, each one is its own little sort of comedy of errors. Um, and, and so uh, um, there's, uh, uh, you know, actually, actually getting one of these things made is just an incredibly complex endeavor. And uh, it, it can, can stretch over decades. Um, and so they're all kind of 
in one phase or another of that, except for, I mean, some of the really long stuff like, um, well, everything I've written in the last 15 <laughs> years um, is, so, is so big that uh, it's, it's just obviously not suitable as a film adaptation. Uh, but, you know, um, the, the long form, high quality miniseries is something I'm really interested in. Um, and so there might be some potential there, but as far as I know, nothing's happening there either. So um, it's, uh, it's very quiet. Yeah, <laughs> nothing to report. Well, uh, thanks for everything. You guys can, uh, let's move the line closer to the microphone, so then it, right now it's looking, like, it's looking like the, the prescription pickup window at Walgreens. So I, I had a question about sort of the amount of information that goes into your books. Um, how do you sort of accumulate this knowledge? Do you do research specifically for the writing, or do you, is it sort of like lines of inquiry you're interested in that sort of make your way into the writing? And, and also, uh, I'm sort of related to that, to what degree do you try to like stick to the facts versus like make things up to make the story a little better? Well, it depends a lot on, on the, the book and what I'm trying to do, but the, um, um, you know, research is a pretty fine word for it. Uh, research is what actual scholars do and what novelists do is kind of like a sick parody of research. <laughs> um, it's just kind of scraping a few cool I, sh I should speak for myself. I shouldn't. I shouldn't uh, attribute this to all novelists. So that's not fair. But um, there's there's not time to go deep on all of this kind of material. And so um, I tend to go out and, and kind of get a few key things that I think are going to work well in prose, and kind of iterate around those. Um, and, uh, and, and I will go and visit places to get a sense of what those places are like. Um, but that has to be done sparingly because, you know, every, every trip like that produces a big stack of notes and then one feels a, a desire to work all of that into the book. And uh, at a certain point, the reader uh, can get a little tired of it. So. And how much of your time is spent sort of doing the exploration versus actually writing? Well, in the, you know, in the case of the Baroque cycle, um, uh, I was probably, you know, 99% reading and 1% writing at the beginning. And by the end, it was kind of the other way around. Um, so by the end, I only needed to pick up a book if I needed to know, like, what kind of periwig a gentleman would wear in London in 1714, you know, just stuff like that. Um, and, you know, for something like Reem D, which you know, is just essentially me just writing about the world as it is. So pretty minimal research there. Okay. It's kind of like having a dream about a dead relative where you wake up and go, why didn't I ask him that? Um, so, but <laughs> <laughs> that said. Um, I'm happy to be your dead relative. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Um, a lot of, I noticed a lot of your books use uh, science to kind of get across a philosophical point. Is that intentional, and is it relating to something that you're, you, know, you kind of currently go through at the time, or does that just kind of emerge because of the subject matter? Um, it's, it's, I don't know, it's just it's, it's how I think about stuff. It's who I am. Uh, it's, 
It's, uh, it, it seems usable because we're living in an age where science is important, so it doesn't feel like it's completely out of line to, to take that point of view. Um, and if it's uh, explained reasonably well, it doesn't scare too many people off. So. Yeah. Okay, thanks. Could you talk a little bit about a Subatai Corporation and uh, whether you're planning to create anything with a Neil Stevenson byline in the future that doesn't exist on paper? Yeah, well, Subatai Corporation is the, the company that uh, we started to uh, around the, the publication of, of the Mongoliad, which is a serialized online historical novel that I've been co-writing with uh, six other uh, writers uh, for about the last year. And um, we've put together a, uh, an e-publishing system called Pulp, the personal ubiquitous literature platform, <laughs> which, um, um, which we're using as, the, as, as, the, as our way of, of publishing this book. It's subscription-based. You buy a subscription, you get the chapters every week uh, flow to your whatever device you're using to, uh, to read them on. Um, and, um, and, and clearly, uh, it wouldn't make sense to, to build this cool system for publishing ebooks and managing communities around those books and then just use it for one book. And so uh, there's um, definitely plans in the works to, um, to, to, to get more material on it, material by me, materially, material hopefully by other people. Uh, and um, and to keep upgrading the the platform and, and making it cooler as we go along. Thanks. Okay. Thanks. So with another election year coming round, I'm reminded of Interface again, which was eerily prescient, and I'm still shocked has never been filmed because it's of, of yeah, the things I, you've I written. Too, that's even more filmable. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I'm, I'm I'm not sure if you you want to go back and, and revisit. Uh, that that sort of set of novels, or sure, could go back to politics again. Is that something you're you're, you're thinking about? Oh, you mean you, 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 interface cobweb? The, 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 that's you, that strand of sort of. Well, I, that's almost. Uh, it's a little bit like what this is. I mean, it, okay. I, in this case, I'm not co-writing it with my uncle as I did the cobweb and interface, but but the, this one, in a lot of ways, Reemd feels a lot like those. Um, okay. But. Um, um, yeah, I had fun writing those those books with with my uncle, and um, the uh, and it was fun to go back and uh, and do some more of that kind of writing, albeit uh, solo this time. So uh, I, I don't think there will be any more that are kind of squarely in that series. Okay. Uh, but the the other thought was you said you do this enormous amount of research, and then you feel obliged to put it in the book. But in the past, you've done some long form nonfiction stuff that seem to be correlate with the research doing for the books. Have you looked at doing that again? I think you've uh, Mother Earth Motherboard, which seemed to go along with um, Cryptonomicon. Yeah. Um, yeah, there were some happy uh, coincidences that happened, um, uh, such as you're describing. And um, the, um, the, the basic answer is that it just doesn't pencil out. I mean, uh, writing the nonfiction stuff is harder work for way less money. <laughs> and, and so, um, and there's 
kind of annoying features of that kind of work, like being obligated to tell the truth. <laughs> so, um, so to, to, to try to uh, set up another one of those, um, uh, it's a cool idea, but, but in the end what would happen is I would say, what the hell, I'll just go and write the novel. Um, it, it, there, there's no economic sense in, in doing the um, uh, doing the nonfiction component of it. Uh, but this does give me a fine opportunity to say that uh, I think in about a year, HarperCollins is going to publish a compilation of all that stuff, the, the various nonfiction pieces uh, that have been written over the years. So, um, so you, it, it'll be the same old stuff, but in a new object. If, if that, <laughs> If that floats your boat, thanks. I'm just here to fill my oxycontin. <laughs> Sorry, I my 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 issue is that the monitor speakers are aimed at you, so the reason I'm standing here like <laughs> a bit of a of a moron during some of these questions is that I'm having I'm sometimes having trouble hearing what what people are saying. So is this better? That's that's good. <laughs> I wonder if you'd talk a little bit, one of the things that drew me to your writing is the balance between language and math and science. So bring Turing into your writings and that sort of thing. I wonder if you'd talk a little bit about that, that, that balance between wordsmithing and um, mathematical play. Wow. <laughs> this is a pretty fancy gathering. <laughs> Um, the, uh, well, there's certainly a lot of that in Anathem, okay? So that's, the Anathem is all about um, Platonism and Husserl and, you know, crazy metaphysical stuff and the, the main characters are all philosophers, mathematicians, and so on. Uh, the, um, It's, it's, it's a, I would say a weakness of mine to get into that kind of stuff. I really enjoy it. Uh, I, I, I think um, it's an uh, interesting contribution that, that I can make um, uh, to our, uh, our collective uh, literature. Um, I don't see a whole lot of other people doing it. Um, and I'll probably keep looking for ways to do it I, I, I think I wouldn't want to write a large number of consecutive novels about Husserl. Um, you, you, you've got to kind of uh, switch things up a little bit. Um, but, uh, um, you know, it is uh, an ongoing fascination of mine, and so it's naturally, I guess, just going to show up in, in, in what I write. Does, does that address your, your question? Sure, why not? Okay. <laughs> As a quick follow-up, though, yeah. um, do you read fiction, and if so, what? Do I read fiction? Mm -hmm. um, surprisingly little, just because when I'm working, I, I tend not to want to read it, and then I'll, I'll do kind of binge reading uh, when I have time. So, um, you know, I read the whole Game of Thrones series over the summer, um, and so now I'm one of those cranky people waiting for the next, <laughs> next one to come out. Um, the, uh, um, uh, one that, uh, that um, 
I've had the opportunity to read way ahead of time is an upcoming novel, <clears throat> novel by Matt Ruff called The Mirage, uh, which is uh, I think going to come out in January or February, uh, which I highly recommend. Uh, I, I recommend all of Matt's books, but The Mirage is, is going to be awesome. Uh, so. Um, those are the ones that immediately come to mind uh, in the way of nonfiction. The last uh, really amazing book that I read was 1493 by Charles Mann. It's a, a really cool book and um, it's connected to Reemdi because he and I were in China at the same time traveling around together researching. He was researching part of 1493 and I was re researching part of, of Reemdi. Uh, at the same time, so um, so there's a, a kind of connection there as well. Thank you. You're welcome. <laughs> so Neil. So Neil will be happy to sign all your books. If you guys could please exit through this door right here and look for the lovely Cynthia who's waving her arms. She'll lead you in. Um, so if you want to sit in your, have another snack, get a little settled, because we will get through everyone. And thank you so much for coming out and supporting your local independent bookstore, The Booksmith. You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. <laughs>